The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Maya Nicholson, intern at Lawfare, with an episode of Rational Security for February 11th, 2024. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a roundtable podcast hosted by Quinta Jurassic, Scott R. Anderson, and Alan Z. Rosenstein, in which they discuss the week's top national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled, The Feckin' Season. In the episode, Jurassic Anderson and Rosenstein unpack the D.C. Circuit's recent opinion finding that former President Donald Trump is not immune from prosecution for alleged crimes committed while in office. Israel's ongoing military campaign against Gaza and the U.S. effort to facilitate a short-term hostage deal and a potential long-term security pact with Saudi Arabia, and the congressional dysfunction this week over a Ukraine assistance bill, the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and a standalone assistance bill for Israel, and more. This is Rational Security. So I feel like it's only appropriate that since I have now triumphantly returned to Ratsec, we should begin with a discussion of Minnesota weather, which is so <laughs> warm right now. It's in the 50s. I'm going to say climate change is, is bad. I want to be on the record. I'm on the record as against climate change. But it's not terrible in Minnesota. On net, it's <laughs> terrible. But it has certain very localized benefits. It just, it makes me sad and anxious. I hate it. Like every every winter, I feel just this sense of incredible dread that is like in dissonance with, you know, all of the sunshine and the flowers that show up earlier and earlier each year. Give me snow, man. Well, it's because you live in D.C., which I, I feel like if I were in D.C. and I had warm winters, I'd be horrified because then I would think, oh, God, the summer's going to suck even more. Like, that's the problem. I feel like. If no, it's because I like I like cold. I like snow. I'm a Northeasterner. Then you were in the wrong city, my dear. I'm sorry. I yeah, <laughs> <This> is, well <laughs> DC, having grown up here, I tell you, it's not it's not a snowy city. It is a place of moderate climate. I think what you lose in places of moderate climate. It is climate, warmer it is though. Not a place of moderate it is not a place of moderate well, climate. The summer except for the DC humidity. If you take the humidity out, it's moderate climbs, extreme humidity. Because <laughs> what it's at. But that's fine. Uh, Feels like a very gerrymandered definition of moderate. <laughs> yes, which seems very appropriate for our nation's capital. It does, it does. Uh, I would just say, you know, the thing you lose is the ecstatic highs and lows of extreme weather, which is, I think Minnesota lives in, where my sense is like the first day that breaks 45 degrees 
everybody is in like short shorts and out on you know the green sunning and like it's kind of like an age of aquarius music video sort of moment where there's just singing and dancing and people with flowery headbands everywhere <laughs> uh, and then winter correct. and then winter comes and it's just like everybody has to descend deeps into the bowels of the earth for four months and so you have that kind of like cathartic cycle that it's a little more exciting it makes life like a little more notable i will say I, I I will admit there 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 is no joy like the joy of a of a Minnesotan in in early May. Yeah, I believe it. I'm curious. It's just it's just everybody's just drunk and crazy everywhere. Not even conditional on you know Lutheran introversion. It's just like straight up people go nuts. It's really pretty. But fun. if we're being honest, it's a nice little flavor too. It kind of brings it out a little bit. I feel like, like the Lutheran guilt. It's like uh, it's like if uh, you know you took Lake Wobegon. Like it's Lake Wobegon kind of had a Girls Gone Wild episode. Is kind of what we're talking about here. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, back here in the virtual studio for the first time in a long time with both of my other regular co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. It's so nice to be back. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. Alan, the prodigal son has returned. Your young has returned to Quinta's eyes, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Quinta, you can pick whichever one you want to be. That's fine. Uh, I think I'm the one with the mustache. I'll just take that one now. We're thrilled to have you back, Alan. Welcome. Thank you. I am. I'm glad to be back. It is uh, great. Great to have you. Are you feeling refreshed? Are you feeling uh, well rested from your long vacation in a tropical yeah. locale? I assume. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, since the reason for my departure was uh, the birth of child number two, uh, I am delighted and extremely tired. But I, I, I look forward to bringing the manic. I guess I'm not a new father. I'm a of a. a New, I don't know. I don't. I don't. What do you? What do you call? What do you call it if it's when your second kid? It's not new parent. It's renewed parent. Since I am a renewed, renewed parent, a renewed parent of of an infant, I look forward to bringing crazy manic energy. Like at the library, we just didn't get around to reading that book the first time around. You're like, eh, just one more go. <laughs> Let's just do one yeah. more renewal. See if this time yeah. I'll actually read it. Yeah, I will. I will say, what is what is that joke from? Uh, I think it's it is the importance of being earnest. Oscar Wilde, right? To lose one parent is a tragedy. Two is an is a. Uh, Carelessness. Uh, carelessness. I feel like, you know, you have one kid and it's like you get the, the freebie for the bad judgment, but two, like you knew what you were getting yourself into. <laughs> How, what is the marginal, the marginal difficulty level? What is it so, but from so, the one to the two? Because it's a source of much contention. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a, a lot. So I, on the one hand, I think having a second child, at least for me, has made me reflect on how over worried and how like way more stuff I did that was necessary for first kid. Like in like what was I so stressed about? They're they're incredibly simple. Like they just need to be fed and and you know, cuddled. It's just and like a, it's just like a squishy Tamagotchi. Yeah, it's like it's extremely not complicated. But of course now you have the toddler you also have to deal with. And like the poor toddler didn't sign up for any of this. Like the poor toddler <laughs> just wakes up one day and is just no longer the most important thing in his parents' lives, right? And so I, I would say it's it's definitely not twice as hard. It's like 1.4 times as hard, let's say. But the problem, of course, is that I didn't have 0.4 of a child's worth of extra bandwidth. <laughs> or so, sanity. Or yeah. sanity. So uh, it's it's an experience. I mean, I recommend it. It's very cute. I forgot. <laughs> God, babies are cute. They really are. They really They're are. So cute. I mean, they they have to be, given how useless they are. 
I think that's part of the God, biological like, yeah. formula. It's one hundred percent. Yeah, that actually absolutely is part of one hundred percent. The only reason well, we don't why, eat them is the hundred percent. But God, they're they're cute, and and you know, and I think the the older one enjoys having the younger one, and it gets some very cute, very very cute pictures of the of the older one holding the younger one. I mean, there's there's a lot of parents trying to keep the younger one from falling off and stuff. It's good. <laughs> it's good. Well. I am thrilled to have the band back together, as I'm sure the listeners are as well. Although we have we have done well, we hope in your absence. Uh, but yeah, I, think I gotta worth- say, I, I've been I've been listening to to Rational Security quite religiously. It's a really good show. It's not bad. Like, now that you finally no, it's, listened, it's, yeah, you're like, oh, it's yeah. really no, it's really good, right? Like I've just been listening as a listener for the last two months, and I mean, I almost feel bad about coming in and, and wrecking the great thing you guys got. You know, you have with Molly and, and Natalie and Tyler and all all the other folks, but it's uh, it's good. Well, you know, you record five or six audio hours of audio, and then Jen just works her magic, and somehow you get about 16 minutes of quality content yeah, out of it. All right, that's about right. And that's how we do it. Well, listener, we're thrilled to have you back with all three of us and be all here with you. But a quick programming note, enjoy it while it lasts, uh, because in a few short weeks, I am taking my own extended absinthe for the very same reason that Alan did, and that we are also having a second child come early to mid-March. Uh, so if you like the three of our voices savor it for the next few weeks because uh, I will be gone for a while uh, and then I will be back and then presumably Quinta will quit uh, and then from there uh, we'll see how things I'm gonna go. I'm going to go hang out with my dog. There you go. Exactly. But we're, we, we, will, we will still hopefully be back together uh, imminently afterwards but for the next few weeks we have all three of us uh, along with some other members of the Ratsack friends and family so we are excited to be back with you for these weeks. For what we are calling in honor of our you know, baby lawfare babies number like six and seven, I think, in the few years that I've been here. It's kind of insane. The feckin' season edition, the creepiest possible way <laughs> God, to describe it. So much. I do too, but I love it. At the same time, I, I, I love it. I would just like to say that that my suggestion for the title uh was Don't worry, Elon, Lawfare is doing its part edition. And uh I I I'm gonna go with that one. I was worried that would mean that people thought we were fucking we we're talking about fucking up Twitter, <laughs> which we're also doing. <laughs> That's fine. But the fecund season is upon us here at Lawfare, and of course, let us let us enjoy it with uh, some very weighty uh, and a seasonal of the season decisions in national security news. Because we've had a big week in national security news, lots of big items happening, uh, a few big updates, and a couple stories we have been tracking that we think are worth talking about and stepping back in and visiting on. Um, so let us dig into it. Our first topic for this week is losing the immunity challenge. Everybody watch, is that show still on Survivor? I think it's still on. I think it's still on like 30 seasons. That's immunity. That's the Survivor thing. Anyway. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a naked and afraid guy. Oh, that is a better choice. show. I agree. Uh, earlier this week, the DC Circuit, that sounded much more lecherous than I meant to do when I said, oh yeah, that's a much better show. My voice just did a weird thing. I don't know what that was about. Between that and the fecundity. Yes, exactly. It's 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 not healthy. Uh, earlier this week, the D.C. Circuit rejected former President Trump's attempt to appeal the denial of his claims of presidential immunity to criminal charges arising from January 6th. That is a mouthful. That issue is now primed for the Supreme Court to take up. But will it? And what will it decide? Topic two, ordeal or no deal. As Israel's military offensive in Gaza continues, the United States is trying to facilitate a short-term hostage deal and a longer-term bargain that would incorporate Israel and Saudi Arabia into a security pact while addressing the Palestinian concerns. How realistic are these proposals and how might they impact the dynamics of the Gaza conflict? On topic three, the shakedown breakdown. Congressional Republicans who once insisted on tying Ukraine assistance to a border deal have now turned against any effort to hash out a border deal, even as House Republicans have also failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas 
or to pass their own standalone assistance bill for Israel. Where does this all leave aid for Ukraine and what ramifications will this congressional dysfunction have moving forward? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you. So on Tuesday, the D.C. Circuit uh, issued a long-awaited opinion in United States versus Trump, the uh, criminal indictment and trial of the former president for election interference and a variety of other sins uh, emanating from his attempt to overturn the 2020 election. The issue is whether Trump was uh, or is absolutely immune from criminal prosecution for acts taken in his official capacity while president. And in a very interesting, you know, closely argued per curiam opinion, per curiam meaning that it was formally unsigned, which is essentially that uh, all three judges uh, on the panel decided to take sort of joint responsibility. We can talk about what the signaling uh, of that is. Uh, and in this per curiam opinion, uh, the court held quite conclusively that Trump does not uh, enjoy this criminal uh, immunity. So there's a lot to talk about here. Um, I want to first actually turn to Quinta and just ask her to give a kind of overview of the opinion. Quinta, you and Scott and some uh, uh, other folks at Lawfare wrote a great kind of overview explainer this, the same day that the opinion came out. So hopefully you can give us the kind of high level of uh, what you all covered in that. I'm going to skip over the super sexy jurisdictional question, which Scott can can talk about. You're, you're no fun. Can't I wait. I don't care about <laughs> continuing this basketball. weirdly sensual episode of Rational <laughs> Security. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care about the jurisdictional question. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. The opinion is actually pretty straightforward. Um, so Trump essentially made three main arguments, and I'll just kind of go through them each in turn. So the first is that uh, separation of powers concerns bar courts from reviewing official presidential actions. And for this, Trump relied on Marbury versus Madison. You know, it's a good sign when that's what you're basing your argument on. Um, and the court was not impressed by this. I think we can say fairly that this was sort of the a pet issue of Judge Karen LaCraft Henderson during oral argument. She really went in on this, and the this section of the opinion sort of reflects the considerations that she was weighing uh, during arguments. The very short version, without going into the details on Marbury, is essentially that there's not a separation of powers issue here because Trump has allegedly broken a law passed by Congress um, and breached his constitutional obligations. And under Marbury, the judiciary has the ability to review um, those actions. The next argument is that there are sort of functional policy considerations um, that are important for keeping the executive branch running that rely on criminal immunity for for former presidents. Basically, the argument being, you know, if you don't allow this immunity, then everyone will be scared of being prosecuted after they leave office um, and they'll never do anything. Uh, again, the court was not particularly impressed, um, reasoning both that, first off, Past presidents have been laboring under the assumption that they didn't have immunity, and it doesn't seem to have caused them a huge amount of problems. Um, and second off, that the the interests um, in the opposing direction, the interests of the public and of the executive branch in prosecuting this case, um, are sufficiently weighty that they outweigh any interest um, on the part of former presidents voiced here by, by Trump, insofar as the public has an interest in uh, the enforcement of the criminal laws does the executive branch, and also that the conduct at issue here on Trump's behalf is something that was explicitly aimed at overturning the votes of the public and of 
obviating what the court positions as sort of the the last biggest check on the executive branch, which is losing an election. Then that brings us to the third argument, which is kind of this technical argument about the impeachment judgment clause. So the again, the very short version is that the clause says that uh, if you are convicted in an impeachment proceeding, you can still be tried criminally afterwards. Trump tries to draw a negative inference of that and says, aha, but I was acquitted in my impeachment proceeding uh, over January 6th, therefore I cannot now be prosecuted. Um, And the court basically says, uh, and this is following some reasoning set out during oral argument um, in questioning by Judge Florence Pan, nice try. Um, This is sort of too cute by half. It's not in line with the text of the clause, with the relevant constitutional history, And also it sort of ends up arguing against Trump because there's an admission here that, you know, okay, well, if you do allow prosecution, if you have been convicted in an impeachment proceeding, then that means that there isn't the kind of absolute all-encompassing immunity that Trump is arguing for. That's, again, the very, very short version. I think what was notable to me here is that, as you said, we did get a per curiam opinion. The court is really speaking with one voice. Um, and they, they did move quickly. I was among those who criticized them for dragging their feet, and I actually will hold to that criticism. <laughs> I do think that they could have moved more quickly. And given that the clock is ticking toward November, the the loss of an additional month um, is potentially a problem. But this is a, it's a very strong opinion. They clearly did a lot of work to sort of speak with one voice um, and try to put something together that could potentially allow the Supreme Court to decline to grant cert and just kind of leave the matter here. So that's the kind of opinion itself. Um, Scott, I think just as interesting as the opinion is the the judgment part, right? The kind of order to the lower court and to the parties as to what to do. And it's usually not something we care all that much about with these opinions, but this is, I think, an exception. So w- what's in this judgment and and can you do the do the the calendar math gaming out for us, if you will? Sure. It, it, it's a really interesting aspect here. It's often actually a really important part of these particularly intermediate court of appeals determinations uh, is the judgment that often gets overlooked because it's not published as part of the opinion and judges, for whatever reason, that's never been clear to me, don't always describe their judgments in their opinions. So the published parts you read as a law student or as a lawyer don't include that always. What they did here is really novel and interesting as far as I can tell. They basically said, okay, we are going to stay the mandate. That means that we're not going to allow the district court to continue with the criminal trial that this was an appeal from through February 12th. So basically a little less than a week. That hold of the mandate will continue if former President Trump applies to the Supreme Court for a stay pending a petition for certiorari, meaning if the president decides to appeal this to the Supreme Court and then ask the Supreme Court for a stay, we're going to continue to hold the mandate until the Supreme Court decides on a stay. That's not that unusual, other than the fact it really encourages Trump to move quickly on that initial request. But a, a request for a stay, again, is a much more constrained legal request than an actual petition for cert. So it's something that I think asking him to do that in five days isn't going to be perceived as unreasonable by most people, including the Supreme Court, importantly. What's really interesting was they did with the rest of the D.C. Circuit. Remember, this is just a three-judge panel. There's an option where you can usually, with from an appellate court, appeal of sorts, actually potentially a petition for rehearing of a particular decision by the whole court, or at least all the active judges on a court. That's called a rehearing en banc, which is kind of an intermediate optional appellate stage that plaintiffs or parties can pursue instead of going to Supreme Court or before going to Supreme Court. In this case, they essentially said, hey, 
if you petition for a rehearing en banc or petition for a hearing even with this panel, which is another option, two things that Trump may have been tempted to do if his main incentive is to delay, as we have been suspecting is the case, then the mandate will not actually be continued to be stayed. It will go back to the trial court. So if you roll the dice on that, former President Trump, the, the court essentially says, this panel says, then you're going to have to deal with the fact that trial proceeding is going to continue unless and until both those requests are granted. This is a kind of wild thing to do, I think. Uh, maybe there's, a, there's an aspect of DC Circuit practice I missed, uh, but I, wa I, I follow these things with enough closeness, I'd be a little surprised. Essentially, they're saying if you if it's a high risk maneuver to try and seek rehearing in the DC Circuit. I, I think what this means is that this decision actually might, at a minimum, it means they're very confident that the DC Circuit is, as a whole is not going to take this up on rehearing on Bach. But I think it might mean more than that. I kind of suggest it means that they may have floated this opinion by the rest of the DC Circuit before they issued it, because this would be a kind of disrespectful thing to do if they didn't have a strong sense that the rest of the court was already on board with doing this. Because essentially they're saying, you know, we are going to punish a party for trying to appeal to the rest of you for your alternative judgment. And that's just a, a little bit of an uncouth thing to do if you didn't get sign off. We know the DC Circuit and other appellate courts do do these sorts of informal consultations at, at times. Like there have been a handful of cases where the DC Circuit has occasionally gotten a matter at a panel and said, nope, we're going to go ahead and just take this on bonk because we know there are enough other judges that care about this that are going to want to have a voice on it that we're not going to bother with the, the panel phase. And so something similar, but in reverse, might have happened here. We don't 100% know. But I think that actually might help explain the delay. And in my mind, frankly, if, if it's a month delay, but it got you in a position where you can credibly cut off the possibility of a rehearing of rehearing on bonk, that is very much a net time savings um, because the period to petition for those things itself, I believe, is 45 days, 45 or 60, I can't remember. So it's substantial. That on top of the time to coordinate a per curiam opinion between three judges that are ideologically diverse, fairly bipartisan, Judge Karen Henderson, who's on this panel, traditionally very conservative judge, very protective of presidential prerogative, and a very wordy writer who really likes to write her own opinions. So getting her on board, I suspect, was a heavy lift, uh, even though she clearly agreed with the other judges from oral argument uh, from a month ago that we we're well aware of. So long story short, I'm I'm seeing the product now. I get why it took a month, and I still think it might be a pretty substantial net savings. Where this leaves us time frame-wise, I think, depends on what the Supreme Court does. Um, Supreme Court can consider uh, you know, exactly the stay in the first place. They're going to get that request in five days, almost certainly. Uh, that's what the, the panel decision has kind of laid out. And then they can move on it relatively quickly or not. Um, it is stayed pending the resolution of that. It's it's it, the, the mandate's held as soon as President Trump applies for it. So that's probably going to be the first thing they do. That requires a five judges or five justices, excuse me, to agree we're going to issue a stay. And in theory, they're supposed to weigh the likelihood of success on the merits and the likelihood of receiving cert or giving cert into that formula. Although I think in practice, justices tend to be a little loosey-goosey with when they stay things uh, in many cases, um, as do judges at the, at the lower level. Regardless, and then at some point, former President Trump will file a formal petition for cert. That's the thing that actually lays out the arguments. Here's why we should give us cert and take up this issue. That only requires four justices to agree to grant cert. But for that, you're going to have, uh, I think, two months, 30, 60 days to petition for. I have to check the time on that. I feel like I, I think it's 60 days. Do you guys know off the top of your head? Uh, so I th I'm not sure, but I know that the court, I mean, they can expedite if they want to. Right. And we've we've seen that before. Oh yeah, yeah. So they, they, they could they could move things a lot. Like I think that I'll, there's a lot of calculations being flung around about oh you know this is going to take a million years because he has sixty days or ninety days or something, but they can speed things up if they want to. Um, and they've certainly been conscious of the the timing in the past. 
Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I don't think we really know. We know that traditionally under the conventional rules, former President Trump has a certain period of time, I believe it's 60 days to petition for cert. Um, so there you can run down the clock on that, barring some pressure from one direction or another that, that we haven't seen come into play yet. Um, then the Supreme Court's going to have to decide on it. Then we'll have a period of decision where the Supreme Court will actually come back. But the Supreme Court may decide sooner rather than later. And if they decline to stay the mandate, uh, meaning if they decline or reject the motion that they will almost certainly receive in five days, then this goes back to the trial court. Now, it's qu- it's possible that you'll have five justices for that. W- you will not be able to get five justices to stay the mandate, but you'll still get four justices to grant cert, meaning you'll get a Supreme Court decision where they can address some of these other issues. But five justices didn't think it was likely to change the outcome and that former President Trump is likely to re- uh, work this out on appeal. And so that means the trial court can then proceed. So w- we might know soon, potentially as soon as six days that Supreme Court moves extremely quickly, that this trial can then restart. And then you have to take kind of the time that's already been lost uh, during which trial proceedings were held up by this appeal onto the probably the existing original March 4th trial date. Um, so then, you know, that pushes out another 30 days plus the time or whatever the deliberation time over those motion. I, I think if you do all the math, Basically, there's different estimates all over the place, and frankly, they're all kind of phantom numbers. But realistically, I think the the earliest we would get a decision would be sometime over the summer, um, meaning a final trial decision, if everything goes this way. It could be towards the earlier side of the summer, but I think that's about right. And the trial could start in May, I think would probably be the earliest realistically. Then it could go further than that. I mean, it could go if three in court remands certain issues back to the D.C. Circuit, which is possible, um, then it could drag out even further. Um, so it all depends on really how the Supreme Court decides to structure its approach to this issue. And I will just say on the timing point, Scott, I mean, that's insane timing. I'm not saying that's bad timing, but I mean, Trump has effectively now pushed this, his trial to the worst possible time for him. And again, I'm fine with that. Yeah, right. Not just worst possible time for him, who cares, but really the worst possible time for Republican voters, because they may really be in a situation where they will have just nominated this guy to be their presidential nominee. And then he gets convicted, right? And then they're extremely screwed. And again, right, I mean, I'm not going to cry too many tears over that, but there's a little bit of a a be careful what you wish for uh, aspect here. Getting back to the opinion, though, for a second, you know, so we've talked about kind of the timing in terms of cert, but we should talk about whether the Supreme Court should, in fact, uh, take up cert. Um, And here I want to reference a a very interesting piece that um, Jack Goldsmith uh, wrote for Lawfare, arguing that uh, although you know, he thinks the opinion came to the right conclusion, he thinks that for a number of reasons, the, the Supreme Court should take the should, should actually hear this case, right? In part, because this is just a very important issue of federal law. And that is one of the standard bases on which the Supreme Court is supposed to take cert. And beyond the issue of this simply being an important federal issue, Jack argues that um, because it touches on kind of obliquely some other uh, related legal issues, in particular, the question of, as a matter of statutory interpretation, when does a generally applicable criminal statute actually apply to the president? That for those reasons, the the Supreme Court should should take up the opinion uh, and hopefully kind of deal with those kind of collateral issues, maybe as well, because it's have an opportunity to do so. Um, I'm just kind of curious what you, Scott, and, and Quinta think about you know, both the likelihood of the Supreme Court taking this issue up and also whether they should. And the last thing I'll just add to this is, you know, I'm I'm old enough to remember when the Supreme Court declined uh, to take up this issue in the first instance, uh, despite special counsel and wizard 
I'm so glad I can I can refer to him as wizard again. I missed that. Uh, special counsel wizard Jack Smith asked the court to do that, just skipping over the DC circuit. Uh, they they declined, and I must. I, I wonder if if you think there are any sort of tea leaves to be read from that um, initial decision. Yeah, I so I do think that the fact that they denied cert before judgment certainly adds weight to the argument that they might deny cert here. I don't know how much weight it adds, but if I had to bet, I would bet they deny cert. I think that um, maybe they wouldn't if they weren't also hearing this 14th Amendment case. But to be completely honest, I just think John Roberts doesn't want to deal with this guy. Like, why would you take up another case involving Donald Trump. But but, but is it up to him? To. I mean if 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 it's just John Roberts and the and the and the three liberals who don't want to take it up. I mean that that leaves five. That's enough for sure. Well, right, but if so if you if you look at the way that the DC circuit opinion is written, I think it's very clearly written to uh encourage the court to deny cert if indeed it wants to do that. There are citations in it all throughout to opinions written by Kavanaugh, by Thomas, there's a, a hilarious paragraph uh, where the the court there essentially goes through different cases in which appeals courts have ruled on efforts to secure judicial criminal immunity. And what you see if you look at that, um, and thanks to someone who pointed this out to me on on social media, is in italics the little words "cert denied, cert denied, cert denied, cert denied." <laughs> so there's certainly an indication uh, that this is kind of an escape route if the if the court wants to take it. I do think that from the the position of kind of thinking about the legitimacy of the court, which I do think that others. Other justices, in addition to Roberts, are also increasingly concerned about, frankly, um, in the aftermath of Dobbs and in the wake of all of this reporting about money in the court, um, that there's a real incentive to just say, like, we're not going to touch this one, especially given that they're now stuck with the hot potato in the 14th Amendment case. I mean, Jack's article is interesting reflection on sort of the equities that OLC has, the Office of Legal Counsel within DOJ has in this opinion, insofar as what he's arguing is essentially that the, as I understand it, the DC Circuit ruling uh, is going to cause a lot of problems for internal OLC interpretations about how to uh, interpret generally applicable criminal statutes when it comes to the president. But given that OLC is clearly on board with what Smith is doing here, um, and Ben and I have have written a little bit about why we think that. I find it hard to imagine that that in and of itself is going to be enough to kind of push the court to to take this issue on, particularly because I don't think Smith, I mean, Smith doesn't want them to grant cert. He's, he's not going to make that argument. Yeah, I generally agree with that. I want to go back to the idea of what what the court has done here to lay out why it is setting itself up to grant cert. I think it goes a lot more beyond just signaling like, hey, here's this option. When you're a judge, you can kind of approach decisions in at least two different ways strategically, right? One is you can try and lay out what you think the legal standard is. That can be good because it lets you say, here's how I think these cases, this category of cases like this should be resolved and lay down a clear rule saying, here's exactly how the different principles and equities to be involved. And this is the sort of thing that, frankly, like judges get in the business to do, right? Like you want to have your name called like, you know, the the something principle, the Kavanaugh principle, the Kavanaugh standard or whatever the judge's name is because or, – or, or like write a seminal case that defines that standard because like that's the ultimate work of a judge. And when you're an appellate court judge, that's your hope is that like you write an opinion that 
gets taken up by the Supreme Court and made this is the standard you get credit for it, like Lauren Silverman has for uh, for many years uh, in Olson and and under or a number of other examples like that. That's very much not what this court did at all. Instead, what they did basically, they said we're rejecting the proposition that former President Trump put forward that presidents are categorically immune for official acts. And then they say, and we accept the possibility that presidents may be immune for certain other types of criminal conduct, but it makes no sense when you're talking about things related to the 2020 election. Between those two things is a a vast terrain on which the Supreme Court justices are free to project whatever standard they like. And by denying cert, they are allowing an opinion to stand that is not inconsistent with any of those standards meaning that they are actually not letting really problematic case law lie because the case law avoids drawing any sort of standard or line that justices might find objectionable or take issue with and force them in their mind to draw an alternative line. So it becomes an opinion that frankly is like a lot more satisf- less satisfying probably for judges, frankly less satisfying for people who are going to have to deal with similar circumstances in the future that aren't closely bound to the facts of this case. But I think it becomes a lot easier for a ideologically conflicted and frankly like hard to read on this issue set set of justices on the Supreme Court to say, nah, let's let this one lie. Because while we might like have our own ideas about how we would deal with this scenario, what they say is not fundamentally wrong or objectionable, even if we feel like it's an incomplete picture. And for the other reasons that Quinta noted, the legitimacy reasons, the fact that they have a loaded docket with these cases already. They're also waiting to hear for a likely appeal in blasting game, the civil uh, immunity sort of companion uh, to this case, I think on the 15th, if I recall correctly, that's, that's due. So like they have a lot of issues involving Trump before it. And, and also fundamentally, like Trump's arguments here are weak. No one thinks they are persuasive. They are very bold, exaggerated constitutional claims. And while there may be some inkling in there where people say, well, there should be immunity here and there, I don't think many people find it persuasive in this particular context. I don't think that many justices are likely to either. And so with all those factors combined, it might be one that they're happy to let the D.C. Circuit have, just as they did when they first considered the issue uh, in December. So that, that's where my money is on this, uh, although I would be I would not go so far as to say it's, it's a sure thing. It's an unpredictable set of variables with an unpredictable set of people. But if I had to put money on it, that's where I would put my money. Speaking of things that Donald Trump could make worse... How's that? <laughs> That's good. That's good. Actually, uh, so we've we've been hearing news uh, about ongoing negotiations between Israel and Hamas about a possible uh, cessation in hostilities and exchange of hostages. This is mediated by Egypt and Qatar. Who else? And recently, uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken has been getting in on the action as well. It's also worth noting that, I mean, this is coming at a pretty rough time for the Israeli government politically. There is some reporting uh, that the New York Times had out about how, uh, according to the government, a fifth of the hostages that remain in Gaza are um, likely dead or certainly dead. Um, There's a pretty astonishing statistic there that only one hostage has been uh, successfully rescued by an Israeli rescue operation rather than through an exchange. And there's been increasing unrest, I think it's fair to say, among uh, Israelis and within the Israeli government, within the, the war cabinet, on the government's failure to secure the release of hostages. So Scott, I, I turn, of course, to you. 
What do you make of these negotiations and what is on the table here? It seems to be changing pretty quickly. So keep in mind, listener, we're recording this on Wednesday morning. But what are the different proposals on offer? Sure. I mean, what we have right now is kind of the counter proposal by Hamas. I don't think we have the full contours of all the different deals, but Hamas has kind of come back through interlocutories with primarily the Qatari government, although Egypt has been involved as well, and said essentially, look, we want a complete withdrawal of Israeli troops. We want a ceasefire for four months, 135 days. You know, we want to see reconstruction of Gaza in a particular window. They are essentially uh, extending the negotiations beyond just the parameters of the conflict to the broader Palestinian question. And if you buy into one set of logic about why Hamas did what it did on October 7th in pursuing such a horrendous massacre, this feeds into that theory. The idea was that Look, the leverage that Palestinians have or that we as feel like we have as a, a group concerned with Palestinian issues is violence. And by committing violence, that's the only and threatening it credibly. Like that's how we're going to get leverage in this particular action uh, or this particular negotiations. And we now have that leverage and we're going to use it to try and advance a variety of goals across different platforms. I think that might be a little generous to Hamas. Uh, also, because this is just their counteroffer, we will see where it goes. Um, you know, I, I, it's far from clear for me to me that Hamas comes out of this conflict in a better position than it went into it when it was essentially governing Gaza and had been in a relatively stable status quo. And that is just no longer the case now. Uh, part of the deal also that Gaza is urging for is a return to kind of a 2002 status quo. That's a return to a period where you saw a motion towards Palestinian autonomy, movement towards Palestinian elections that really haven't happened in many, many years now. The PA has been in power based off elections that happened in 2006, 2007, uh, almost entirely. You know, there's been some little actions between now and then, but it's really not a democratic government at this point, if it ever was, despite having some ties to early elections. And they seem to be suggesting, no, we want to go back to a period where um, there was this trajectory there. And importantly, there was still a role for Hamas in the Palestinian political scene. Um, it was not, there was not a broader international effort to kind of force it out of the Palestinian politics because of its ultra-violent views towards Israel and Israeli statehood. That's all going to be too big an ask. Like These terms are not going to get bought into. Um, and now we're going to see where the counteroffer is, which I'm guess is i guessing is going to look a lot narrower from the Israelis if we get a firm counteroffer uh, and, and exactly what the leverage is here. And, and the fact that you, know, you have only a limited number of hostages who are still living, which is a really tragic event, you know, limits Hamas's leverage. Like traditionally, hostages have been a real source of leverage, but the Israeli government hasn't treated them that way this time in a way that I'm wondering whether we're going to see a public reckoning about at some point. We have to bear in mind, like a lot of these Israeli hostages who, who have died were probably killed by Israeli military operations. We know Israeli military operations have had a high rate of civilian casualty. Um, they have been criticized, but no one disputes whether it's right or wrong. No one disputes that it's happening, that they're using large ordnance musicians and taking a lot of actions that are not terribly precise. Uh, they're collapsing tunnel complexes. They're blowing up buildings. And all these things are places where hostages are probably being held. So I don't know how the Israeli public's going to react to that when you start seeing the details of that. We've seen one high-profile incident where a number of hostages were killed by Israeli troops after waving a white flag. Um, that, frankly, should be a really troubling alarm bell about Israeli military practices. But I think it's one incident is easier to write off and say, well, this was a set of soldiers that exercised bad judgment in the field. 
But I am curious what the after action reports are going to be as they find out exactly why more and more of these hostages were killed. And I suspect it's going to be a really difficult issue for the Israeli politic to to wrestle with is the fact that like these military, their own military campaign probably killed a lot of these hostages that was kind of the purpose of the military campaign in a lot of ways. And that have traditionally at least been a a major focus of Israeli national attention. Hostages have always been a major priority for them. And that appears to have really been traded away at this point by the Netanyahu government and by the the wartime uh, coalition that's kind of de facto heading up the military operation. I mean, the only thing I would just add to that is, is and I think this last point that you just mentioned, it's not just the Netanyahu government, right? It's the Netanyahu government and the war cabinet, right? And the war cabinet is very different from the Netanyahu government in that the war cabinet is meant to be much more bipartisan. And I think that's what's so, that's what's so striking. Right. There, there's a lot of suspicion, and I think correct, that Netanyahu is trying to stall for time because the moment the war ends, he has to resign. And the moment he resigns, he gets indicted or re-indicted or I, I've lost I've lost the plot on that particular uh, side of Israeli politics. Uh, and so, you know, if it was just Netanyahu, you could you could sort of make that kind of cynical calculation there. But it's not just Netanyahu, right? I mean, and I, I do think that this reflects a potential shift, right, in in Israeli attitudes towards towards hostages, and and not a shift that's going to be uncontroversial. I'm not saying that all of Israeli society has gone, has has swung from the sort of I think pretty extreme end of like you know we will turn the country upside down if there is one hostage, right? Which honestly does seem to be the position for many many years, all the way to well, once you're a hostage, we we sort of have to write you off um, because we just don't negotiate with these folks. Uh, but I just I just think it's notable that this is is as much, if not more, a war cabinet decision, I think, than it is even an, a decision from Netanyahu. Well, I want to ask about that, actually, because I know there's been discontent within the the war cabinet. So I think the the lead voice I've seen on this is uh, Gadi Eisenkot. But there's been a lot of frustration and sense that, you know, perhaps Netanyahu is stalling. Scott, is this putting his hold on the government in any kind of danger or is he really going to be able to kind of ride this out? It's a real question. I think you have to be a closer follower of Israeli politics than I am. And I suspect even for people who really close, follow it very closely, it's a big open question. I mean, Netanyahu is an incredibly savvy guy who's willing to engage in a lot of brinksmanship uh, and make a lot of political decisions other people wouldn't be willing to, to stay in power. You know, you can see his political evolution and he has been siding with people further, further to the right and groups that he criticized just five or 10 years earlier as being radical and uncooperative for now in his governing coalition. And who knows where he goes on this? Um, it, it really reflects that kind of fundamental problem here, which is that Netanyahu's whole government, his whole premise has been built on the idea that we can ignore the Palestinian question. We can resist it. We can assert our preferences by force. Um, that was be- true before the Gaza conflict. You know, Netanyahu has overseen the not subtle drift away from the Oslo process and the idea of a Palestinian state that the Israeli government has been on for the last 20 years, really, 15 years, certainly. And that is, you know, been an electoral winner for lack of a better way to put it, like a close one, not an overwhelming one. I think a lot of Israelis, um, and we saw a really articulate, uh, I think, interesting foreign affairs article written by Aleph Ben, who's the editor-in-chief of Haaretz. Um, I think a really insightful guy I've had the opportunity to chat with once or twice uh, and a great voice on this, like laying this out in some detail. Like they are very articulate people who think there are real problems with the ways really of approaching this conflict. But I think Netanyahu sees political advantage in it. And I think what we're beginning to see is Netanyahu is trying to run to the right of the war cabinet. 
he is and members of his coalition are openly doing things that the exact things that are getting Israel in trouble before the International Court of Justice about having meetings where cabinet members are going to meetings about discussing about resettling the Gaza Strip with Israeli settlers that were taken out in, during the withdrawal by Ariel Sharon. Um, you know, they're openly talking about the benefits of forcing Palestinians out of uh, Gaza Strip, resettling them on an island in the Mediterranean or in the Sinai Peninsula, right? They're courting these ideas that are well outside of probably what the war cabinet is considering. I don't think Benny Gantz is going to co-sign on those things. But they are uh, have political salience. And as long as those things still have political salience and he still sees advantage in it, the, any sort of deal that moves away for this is going to be really hard to to see the Israelis buying into. Maybe that's not a problem for this hostage agreement. Like some hostage agreement could still come out of this. We saw one just a few months ago that saw a lot of hostages return and a real ceasefire that was meaningful. And I suspect we'll see something similar to that, especially because Israeli military operations are like kind of reaching the point of marginal return that is that is more limited. But it's a big deal for the broader peace deal. We know the Biden administration is trying to still work out some sort of Saudi-Israeli normalization deal that now incorporates this very tricky Palestinian question. Um, frankly, it sounds a lot like the deal they were working on before the Gaza crisis, before October 7th, that they are just now trying to turn into a solution for Gaza on October 7th in a way that I'm not sure makes a lot of sense uh, or is, makes it politically feasible. But the key point there is that you, you really need the Israeli political base to shift how they think about these issues. And I, I don't think that's clearly happening, at least Netanyahu doesn't seem to, because he's still running in the same direction he's always run into in hopes that that's what's going to save him. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's also been reporting about uh, negotiations between the U.S. and Arab states, in particular Saudi Arabia, some kind of agreement that might allow the magic words in in the Financial Times, the creation of a pathway for the establishment of a Palestinian state. Scott, what is this just complete fantasy that seems a bit far-fetched to me, but maybe I'm just thinking small. It's a fair question. Um, and you know, this has been the a new version of the plan that I mentioned earlier about uh, the Israeli-Saudi deal that was in the works before October 7th. Before October 7th, remember, there's been months of chatter about the idea of Israel and Saudi Arabia entering into some sort of joint collective security arrangement guaranteed by the United States. Probably the United States would be actually, it's be more like a separate arrangement with each country, but as an incentive for them to normalize relations. It was going to be the Abraham Accords plus, 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 like the diplomatic accomplishment that does with Saudi Arabia, the much more important state that the Abraham Accords did with a number of other smaller states in the Gulf and in the region. And now that has been kind of incorporated into the Gaza dispute because um, now they're saying, well, Saudi Arabia 
can help fund reconstruction of Gaza. It's true they can, and they probably will at some point, although they will certainly have political concessions on that. And they have, and the idea is essentially we're going to do that same deal with the security architecture, um, but we're going to incorporate it now, a commitment from Israel and backed by the United States, backed by European powers to a real pathhood to statehood by Palestinians, beginning with actual recognition of a Palestinian state, albeit one that does not have the ability to defend itself. It will not have a military. It's still that uh, Oslo formula where it's autonomously governed, but doesn't have its own defense capabilities. And that you would take that recognition that would bring with it various kind of international rights and duties. It would be a big step towards um, the Palestinians having their cause of nationalism acknowledged by the international community. Although a lot of the international community already acknowledges that and recognizes them as a state, it's worth noting. But uh, if the United States took that step, lots of European governments would follow, almost certainly would be a tipping towards there being recognition by a Palestinian state by the vast majority of countries in the world. What that means then in the long run, though, is is at this point, the Saudis have said none of this can happen until we have a ceasefire on the ground in Gaza and an enduring ceasefire, essentially an end of military operations. I don't know if that's going to go so far as like an end of all operations against Hamas, mm-hmm. but you can't have what's happening in Gaza now. And it has been happening for the last few months of this widespread occupation. And that gets back to this domestic Israeli political question. Like, to be able to make this happen, you have to think that the Israeli you know, body politic wants normalization with Saudi Arabia enough that they're willing to compromise on the Palestinian status question, which again, we've seen kind of the political views of at least the leadership in the Israeli government backed by repeated electoral victories shift hard away from, accept compromise that and accept a ceasefire in Gaza. Whereas right now, it, it seems like Israeli, a lot of Israelis actually still think the Gaza military operation is appropriate ongoing. Again, I think that is going to, that is one view that may well change because as the operation goes on and it's not clear what it's accomplishing, that will get difficult to sort of justify, particularly if you start getting stories about more and more hostages being killed by Israeli military operations. But nonetheless, right now it's not there yet. And so you're really making a hard bet on both Saudi Arabia and Israel switching their kind of existing political views on this. I think The Economist and their summary of it quoted a, I think it was a quote for senior administration official that basically gave a 50-50 chance of both. So it's a one in four chance of this actually playing out. And so it, it just strikes me as a little bit of a Hail Mary pass. I think everybody says we need strategic vision and this is the strategic vision. I'm not even sure it's the wrong one because like I don't know what else you can do with this in the long, medium to long term, but I'm not super... I think it would be naive to think of this as a super optimistic uh, or likely path to a clear resolution of these issues without a lot of just commitment by the United States to go and make hard decisions and do things on this issue set, particularly around the Palestinian question that Israel isn't going to like, and this seems unlikely to like in the near term. And that's not clear that the political will is there yet. We saw this executive order about targeting violence in the West Bank by settlers. Maybe that's, that is a step in that direction, but I, you know, I don't think that alone will be enough. So it, it's just, it's a formula that strikes me as, as a very optimistic one and as a little bit of a, a, a perhaps a pipe dream. Um, not, not to say that again, it's that bad strategic goal to work towards, but it, it's not something that seems likely enough in the near term to actually answer the immediate problems on the ground. And that's why I think we're seeing a lot of these negotiations focus on the ceasefire, um, even as this other broader deal still hangs in the background as it has for for months and kind of years now, really dating back to the Trump administration. Speaking of intractable problems, let us go to our nation's Congress here just down the road from us at the Brookings Institution from my home here in Washington, D.C., because we have seen a fairly chaotic couple of days 
coming out of the Republican caucuses in both the House and the Senate. For months now, we have been talking about the need to provide additional assistance to Ukraine. The Biden administration is all on board for it. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is all on board for it. They have been some of the most vocal supporters of this assistance. But we have heard Republicans in particularly the House, but also in the Senate saying, we can't just do this on their own. We have other agenda items we need to make a priority, particularly the border and immigration. We need to get this deal tied to a border deal. We need to link these things together. And by the way, let's throw in aid to Israel on top of that. And let's throw in aid to Taiwan as top of that, more or less as sweeteners for certain pockets of votes uh, of people who might feel strongly about the border, also feel strongly about Israel and feel strongly about Taiwan. Uh, that deal has been in the works for months. We've seen a, a gang of three, uh, as I like to think of them, a troika of senators working on some sort of compromise, particularly around border issues, which is kind of the most complicated from policy perspective. They rolled out this proposal earlier this week, and it was almost immediately declared dead by both the fellow senators and members of the House. Republicans in the House said, we're not interested in any sort of dealing on the immigration uh, or on the border. That is coming just a week or two after we heard reports that former President Trump said, I want to make this an election issue. Don't make deals on the border or immigration, undercutting uh, the suggestion that that was an appropriate trade to be made for Ukraine assistance. And when the House came out and said, we're not interested in this deal, now it sounds like Republican senators are saying, well, we don't want to vote for this deal and put ourselves out there against our party and against potentially our party leader if we don't think there's a chance of actual law being made more or less shifting blame to the House, but nonetheless not being willing to move forward on this sort of action themselves. Now it sounds like Senate Democrats are getting ready to put forward the aid package without the border deal, going back to what was the plan the Biden administration asked for at the end of last year, which is straight up assistance for Ukraine now paired with some assistance for Israel and for uh, Taiwan, I think is still in there as well. But we don't know where any of this is going to go. We'll see some votes on it later today. It is all around a bit of a mess. Quinta, I want to come to you on this. This is a pretty, pretty messy situation for Senate Republicans, for House Republicans, for lots of other people. It's mixed in, by the way, I didn't mention this, to a failed impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, it's mixed in with a bunch of other, a failure to pass a standalone Israeli assistance bill, even through the House. It is just a mess. What do you make of it? What should we be taking as the takeaway about this? Is this about the challenges of immigration law? Is this about the dysfunction of Republicans in the Congress? Like, who is to blame for all of this? What explains this weird pattern of conduct? And, and where is it going to lead? Democrats in disarray. Obviously, yeah, this is a Democrats in yeah, right, disarray right. story. <laughs> there was there was an excellent New York Times headline. I say that sarcastically. Um, that was something along the lines of like, failure of immigration bill shows the difficulty of compromise. Like, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Doesn't the failure of anything involving two people demonstrate the difficulty of compromise? Kind it's like, of. look, like, like you ask me for something, I give it yeah. to you, and then you slap it out of my hand and punch yourself in the face. Like, I, I guess that's a failure of compromise. Hey, be be careful when you're talking about my toddler. Okay, <laughs> but look, so so in all seriousness, like, yes, there is a like clown show aspect to this, but I and I it says nothing good about. Republicans in in Congress. There's some interesting quotes about uh, Senate Republicans who are basically saying, look, like the House Republicans are driving the bus and they're insane. 
So the bus is just spinning around in circles, essentially. But I do think that it's worth, I'm going to be the naggy scold here and say that I think it's worth focusing just for a minute on the substance, right? So it seems like now, uh, because of some machinations by uh, Senate Majority Leader Schumer, there may be another route to get Ukraine aid through. I'm going to not talk too much about that because it is being negotiated as we're recording. (laughs) So anything that I say now will be OBE and will probably change five times by the time that you hear this. Um, But when it comes to the border issue, I mean, look, I'm, there's a, a very good point that was made on Twitter by Caitlin Dickerson, who's an excellent immigration reporter for The Atlantic, which is essentially that like it's easy to kind of laugh about you know how ridiculous this is and how the GOP was asking for some kind of reforms around the border. They were handed those reforms and they declined to to take them. But on the substance, this was like an aggressively right wing bill when it comes to how we think about the border. And it really underlines how, in a lot of ways, and I've said this a million times, Stephen Miller has won. Um, The ideas about border enforcement and asylum that would have been far, far, far to the fringe under any any administration before Trump are now so mainstream that they're being accepted by Democrats um, as as a negotiating no they really they are and and the Democrats were essentially were not asking for anything along the lines of a pathway to citizenship anything like that in this legislation to be clear uh, because somebody always makes this point when I complain about immigration legislation I'm not saying there aren't problems with the immigration system or with the way that uh, the US handles asylum claims at the border there are but I think it's important to distinguish between, the actual problems that exist and the problems that this bill would address, which are not the same problems. Um, this is in the in the realm of saying, you know, do something and waving your hands around and creating a, a posture of, you know, harsher enforcement, uh, keeping people outside the country that doesn't actually do anything about the enormous backlogs that exist in the immigration, in the asylum processing system already. And so I do think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, it's not just that Republicans were offered something that was right down the middle of their policy priorities and rejected it. It's that even if this deal had gone through, it would not have solved the problem. So obviously, I agree with you that this bill represents a much more restrictive vision on immigration than we've had in the last several years from Democrats being willing to consider. I I guess I would quibble a little bit with your characterization that this is like the victory of Stephen Miller, think, among you know, Americans or among among Democrats in, in the sense, in the sense that first, this idea that the Democrats are the party of like are, are a, a, a profoundly pro-immigration party, like that is relatively new. Like that is that is just not historically been the case. Um, obviously, it's certainly been the case probably since 2000, since Obama. Like all of those things are true. But this this idea of Democrats as self-consciously the party of I don't want to say open borders, such a fraught term, but like the you know extremely extremely welcoming of immigrants. Um, that's a new thing, and it's just not been historically the, the case. The other thing that I would say is I think that Biden is not simply doing this to try to get aid to Ukraine 
I think he's doing this in part because he realizes that he has a lot of vulnerability, not just among Republicans, who cares, are not voting for him, um, but among independents and even some mainstream Democrats on this immigration issue, right? I mean, one thing that's been just really remarkable over the last year is seeing the response of blue city mayors and other leaders to what happens when they experience a large influx of asylees? Now, well, again, right. when 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 people are put on a bus, driven to a remote location in your city that is not anywhere near the services that they need, and dropped off, yes, that creates a problem. But I, I think that's a caricature. I mean, obviously that has happened, right? We're not just talking, yeah. But what you're describing is the Martha Vineyard. Like like the Martha's Vineyard. It, it happened in DC repeatedly down the but street e- from me. Let's say you didn't have red state governors, right, pushing this, right? You would still have a relatively large inflow of migrants and asylees going to a lot of these cities, right? Because that is where there are social supports. That's where a lot of these communities are, right? And I think what we've seen is that people, not just Republicans, but also many Democrats, are much more supportive of very open and generous asylum policies in the abstract, and much less so, not exclusively so, but much less so when they're faced with the actual logistics of dealing with that. And so, you know, I think that this is Biden also, frankly, taking a political gamble that a more restrictionary view on immigration is, frankly, politically beneficial to him among his own constituents. You don't have to agree with that. But I don't think this is just like a right-wing plot. I mean, it's just not. No, what I'm saying is that U.S. positions on immigration across the board have moved to the right. Yeah, yeah. With with, with that, if you agree, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So that's that's what I'm saying. And I also think that the fact that the Democratic Party and people generally are so willing to retreat into a posture in which a border is some kind of inviolable concept that cannot be crossed is repulsive and sad, frankly. Like, I think that there is a a extent to which we flatten this into a sort of, oh, horse trading politics. The Democrats have clearly decided that that's good politics. I'm not a pollster. I can't evaluate that. But I worry a great deal about the extent to which the populist backlash over the last few years has led to a overall rejection of, frankly, the post-war ideal of you know, a right to have rights that is shared by every person, regardless of where you are on the map. I, I guess so. And I, I, so look, philosophically speaking, I'm very much sympathetic to you. But I, I think that this kind of binary is, is not that helpful because you're going to have to draw some lines somewhere, right? I mean, let, let's, just, let's just zoom out for a second from this particular issue, right? Consider climate migration, right? And people, I think, create, having a, a very plausible asylum case when you know their uh, homeland becomes uninhabitable because of climate change, and that causes all sorts of violence and stuff like that, right? You're dealing with potentially tens, if not hundreds, of millions of people doing migration over the next two decades, let's say, right? And I think when the United States, not just red states but blue states as well, are faced with that reality, right? Let me put it this way. Responding to those people's concerns with, yeah, but there's this post-war consensus that people have rights to asylum is not going to be effective. And 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 you're gonna to have to draw some some lines that a lot of that you may find extremely distasteful, but I guess I'm not sure practically what the solution is. Like I I, I just don't think this is a winning 
or realistic policy proposal for those folks who, again, I include myself on this, generally would like a lot more immigration, including asylum. I just don't see it working. I think we're talking past each other a little bit on this, but I, I do think there's an underlying point that I think Quintus makes this very valid. I suspect you'll agree with Alan, which is that the the issue here that we're seeing is that is being framed as as asylum as fundamentally being the problem, as the idea that we can have a process that complies with these humanitarian instincts that are informing our, you know, refugee conventions and the variety of other international and domestic laws that are supposed to be guaranteeing humane treatment for people who are fleeing the United States necessarily. The assumption has, has been in the past, the idea has been in the past, we can do things to address the border crisis without really having to fundamentally compromise those. But I do think there has been a move. Um, I don't think it be- actually begins with Stephen Miller. That's the part I would be... I, I think he's as much symptomatic as he is a, a cause. But nonetheless, there has been a shift over the last 10 years, 15 years of people being increasingly willing to say, there's just no good way to do asylum. We just got to cut, stop, start cutting back the routes to do it. Now, it's not fair to say, I don't think that the Democrats have gone as far as Stephen Miller, certainly, or even most Republicans to whom Stephen Miller is to the right um, on this issue set. Like even in this latest deal, there were certain carve outs of higher thresholds and procedures for particularly vulnerable populations, although whether those align with like the full universe of people who are supposed to be getting protective treatment is a, is an open question, but at least, you know, separated children, people who are at imminent risk of violence or public health risks, things like that. They had carve outs for that were fought for by uh, Senator Murphy and, and people involved in this process um, as a condition of accepting a cutoff of asylum, which is what this authority this would have done. Essentially, the immigration deal, its main mechanism would have done, would have said, after a certain point, if you get X number of people across the border in a given time period, either as a discretionary basis or on a mandatory basis, if it gets a certain threshold, the border's cut down. No more people coming across. Asylum be damned. I do think that's actually a fundamentally problematic framing to say like, oh, we can shift the burden of this onto the most vulnerable foreign populations. And, and it is horse trading, right? Like it is political horse trading. That's absolutely right. But so would be, frankly, if the Biden administration say, sorry, Ukraine, we're done. And we're not willing to do that. You know, we're willing to say, and correctly, I think I will say like Ukrainians deserve support and need support and should have it. And that's in our interest. But I, I also think there's something in our interest to preserving fundamentally this idea that there should be conduits for people who genuinely have need. And, and that means finding a better way to do asylum, not framing asylum as the problem. But that latter framing is what people have bought into. Now, you may be able to justify it as a temporary basis, as a necessary basis to address the crisis, as a politically expedient basis. And I don't even think those are fundamentally wrong, but it is the shift that that we've seen. And frankly, it's been the Biden administration's approach from the outset. Like we saw the border team that came in with the Biden administration resign in the first few months they were in office, right? Like it has been pretty clear from the outset, this was a space that they weren't going to pull political fights on. And maybe they have to do it that way. Politics is hard. Like I'm the first person to subscribe that and like nothing's perfect. And I, I, I get that, but it sucks when you care about this population of people that is being disadvantaged of this for political reasons in a way that we really did think 30 or 40 years ago, we had all agreed as an international community that that they deserve better than that. Does that sound right, Quinta? Does that seem fair? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And the the sort of slow motion destruction of asylum and moving consensus moving against sort of the viability of asylum as an option is exactly what I mean when I talk about the the collapse of the the post-war consensus. And to be clear, I'm not just talking about the United States here, right? Like a lot of European countries, their preferred border policy is literally let them drown. Um so this is this is a a global problem and to be, I also think like yes, it's linked to climate change and when people talk about the worry that climate will lead to a hardening of borders and a movement toward a sort of fascism is a hard word, but uh, that that mode of politics, this is what they are concerned about. Yeah, I, look, I, th- I think all that is fair. I think it's a very, it's a very clarifying conversation to me. Again, none of what I'm trying to say should be should be meant to say that oh the Republicans are putting forward this plan in good faith and of course not right but like at some point it's just not I'm not that interested in talking like for the 87th time about how the Republican immigration plan is bananas my 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 interest more is more broadly the idea that you know and maybe this is from where I sit as like a law professor that reads you know immigration scholarship and you you know once a month reads an article saying look you know uh, asylum the very concept of asylum should be expanded, you know, 10, 100, 1,000 times because, right, and I'm not, I'm not belittling these, these arguments, I'm very sympathetic to them, because if you were to actually say, what is the class of people, right, that can credibly claim, right, true misery in their places of residence, right, danger, uh, broadly defined, you have, it is actually a massive number. And my concern is that the bad faith and the kind of clown carness of Republicans may blind some people on the other side or may get them to underestimate the challenge of crafting a asylum system that is on the one hand actually responsive to the plight of these you know millions tens of millions potentially hundreds of millions of the most disadvantaged and marginalized people in the world with the realities that Countries don't generally like taking that many people in and simply saying, yes, but we all agreed in the post-war situation, um, or we, there was this post-war consensus, just repeating that over and over again, I don't think is going to get us there. And so th- that's what I'm trying to just point to, right? Look, and when we have that debate, I will happily be on the side of, you know, we should just let more people in and we'll just deal with it, right? But I think that's a debate that's going to have to happen, and it's it's a real one. Well, folks, we are out of time together today, despite this very happy reunion uh, and feeling very much back in the swing of things uh, in our conversations. But this would not be Rouse's Security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us this week? Guys, I have a Substack. I did it. I finally did it. I feel like there should be like you, a sad you, trombone. You hero. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you finally pulled the trigger to set up a substrate. I did some I did some real contemplation. I did a lot of journaling. And I decided that what the world needs right now is one more substack. Here's what I'll say as a member of the leadership team of Lawfare. Here's what Lawfare needs. More of its authors to start publishing <laughs> in other places <laughs> on Substack. Look, so so here's I have I have two I have two reasons to have the Substack. One reason is that uh, six months ago. My amazing wife, who is this like wordplay pun savant, just came up with such a good title if I would ever start a Substack, which is The Rosie Outlook. And I just, Pretty it good. just seemed like such a waste not to use that. 
Uh, so that's one reason, and the other reason is more substantive. Couldn't go with I, rose-colored, rose-colored glasses. They could, really, they it could have gone. It could have gone. That's pretty good too, actually. That's pretty good too. Um, and the other reason is I actually really like like email newsletters that just collate random links to things. Like I find that so useful, and um, I actually really like kind of through the week just jotting down cool things I've read and stuff about them a sentence or two. And so like, it's a fun thing for me to write. And hopefully the four people so far who have subscribed to this Substack might find it useful. I expect it's going to be six people right after because you as my friends and co-hosts are contractually slash morally obligated uh-huh. uh, to subscribe. Uh, look, free, I subscribe right? to you. I subscribe to you. <laughs> definitely free. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So anyway, um, come join. It's going to, it's, uh, it's, you know, some links, some thoughts. All right. I have thought about setting up. Do you have a Substack, Quinta? I feel like you 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 Dude, could have a Substack. I had one. I'm, so, I'm subscribed I, to it. I, yeah. Well, I haven't sent anything out in a million years. Well, so I created one because when Twitter was first going under under Musk, I wanted to collect an email list essentially, but I haven't posted in a while. And part of that, sorry, Alan, is that they've come out as affirmatively pro Nazis on they their are services. Not, they are not affirmatively pro Nazi. That I okay, we can have this conversation later. I am I gotta say, as much as I love Casey Newton and Platformer, I am so unimpressed with that particular stance. God bless Substack and and what it's doing. And if there are four Nazis on that platform with 17 followers, that is That's, a price okay. well That's- worth paying. We can separate because it's a substantial misrepresentation of the reporting there, but separate that's conversation. Is Platformer still on Substack? It is. No, they no, moved no, they mo- they because moved of go. Casey's oh. reporting about this. Casey, who, by the way, is like the leading tech reporter on content moderation and knows no, I, this I, stuff. I think I think Casey's great, but I don't have to. I don't have to agree with his uh, with his normative takes. See, Alan and I haven't been able to argue like this for a few oh, months, yeah, so we're just getting get it, it all out, out now. I really missed this. I'm glad I brought up social media. That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. The thing they're really get heated about social media, guys. <laughs> Let's not on. only have not only have we not been able to argue, but I recall a few instances during my absence where Quinta went out of her way to agree with me on Ratsec, and I just thought I that like something horrible had happened. Like I was so confused. She was like channeling Alan, and I was like, "Oh no, something very bad has happened." <laughs> this would be so much less awkward for me if it happened it's while we're here. Day. It would be great. Well, Quinta, <laughs> what do you have for us by way of object lesson this week? Mine is really boring, and I apologize. Um, so tomorrow, when when you listen to this, the Supreme Court will be in the midst of or will have finished uh, oral arguments in Trump v. Anderson, the 14th Amendment disqualification case. So I've been all 14th Amendment all the time. Um, and as part of reading up, I've been reading uh, Mark Graber's book on the 14th Amendment. It is actually the first book in a planned series, but there's only one so far. Um, it's called Punish Treason, Reward Loyalty. And the thesis, as far as I understand it, is essentially that the original design of the 14th Amendment, including Section 3, was much more focused on essentially ensuring partisan Republican control of the government um, and ensuring uh, that loyal unionists were allowed in positions of political power and were protected um, than is acknowledged today. Um, So that leads to some interesting outcomes in terms of how you think about the 14th Amendment. One of them is that it does mean that, you know, the way that we think about Section 3 should perhaps be pretty expansive um, in terms of who it disqualifies and why. But it also turns on its head, I think, some contemporary thinking about the role of sort of protections for freed people in the 14th Amendment and and what that means. So super interesting and thought-provoking. I've definitely been enjoying it um, and recommend if anyone really just wants to nerd out on the 14th Amendment, yeah, let's do it. 
I think you have a lot of company this week on that particular mission. <laughs> Unfortunately, but, uh, yes. Yeah. But that's okay. I think you're going to have the whole affair office with you tomorrow, as I have also been digging through a bunch of Amicus briefs this week and regretting my choices, uh, to say the least. Well, for my object lesson this week, uh, I have something from the annals of social media myself. I, you know, I'm not a big social media guy. I'm not gonna lie. I find it mostly annoying and detached from it back before, from Twitter at least, back before it was cool. Uh, although now I feel like I've gone too far. I may try and use my paternity leave to like re-engage a little bit or figure out what the new social media platform for me and my experience is. But I do miss the occasional kind of moment that pops up where you see a great kind of like cultural sliver uh, or cultural spark light a wildfire. Um, and that happened this past week or perhaps the week before, I can't remember, on Twitter when a user named James Holzhauer, uh, who evidently is quite famous, I did not know who he was, but he's a professional gambler and game show contestant, tweeted out the sentence, who got that one Jeopardy clip? And led to an amazing sequence of people tagging him in thousands of Jeopardy clips that are all hilarious and or amazing in different regards. And I have spent multiple hours, usually in the middle of the night when my son won't let me sleep, uh, looking at and reading and watching these videos. Listening to them. They are amazing. There are so many good ones because Jeopardy was just on the air for so long. And I, as a kid who grew up raised partially, mostly by television, partially by television, and particularly public television my parents did not have cable i watched so much jeopardy back in the day and i remember a few of these only now i kind of get them in context it's kind of amazing uh, other ones i'm just shocked to see they're great the one in particular i will say which i'm not going to describe because it's a little vulgar but is a woman who makes either the filthiest the most hilarious joke in her introduction with alex trebek or says something so vulgar and hilarious and does not even realize it because she's got the most stone cold execution you have ever seen. It is hilarious. One of the best things I have ever seen on the internet. I think it's phenomenal. So check out this whole thread and that clip in particular. It is so worth it. Just to be clear, though, the best Jeopardy is obviously SNL Celebrity Jeopardy. Like, without question. You know, I like those bits. They're fine. Some of these clips honestly rival them for how hilarious they are. Really? Like, because they're, oh, they're so good. I'll never get over Name This Continent Asia. The, by far the biggest clip one, this is not the one I was talking about. It is also a little bit dirty, but I am going to say it. And is the most retweeted one of these was a guy who said, has a screen capture of somebody on his screen where on Jeopardy, during, they write their name on, you know, when the little blue screen with the white marker. And he says, the night before he got on the show, I told this, I showed this guy how to write his name so it looked like a penis on a bar napkin, and he actually did it. <laughs> so that's how he has written his name uh, on the Jeopardy screen. That's pretty amazing. And that's not even the one I'm talking about of the vulgar, hilarious Jeopardy moment. So prepare yourself. It is pretty phenomenal. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But of course, remember that Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series, including the Aftermath now out in season two. And be sure to follow us on Twitter or X at RATL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. In addition, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, this, we're back. I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.